I'll be reading this morning from Acts chapter 1. And I'll begin in verse 9, Acts 1, 9. Now after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into, the he- into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James." These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, Judas, who, was, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus." For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take." It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, Show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we um, just again need the, the teaching ministry of your Spirit who has been given to us and promised to lead us into all truth and to give us understanding. And we thank you, God, that you've not left us alone, and for this tremendous gift that you've given us through the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So we ask, God, that you would work in us of your good pleasure as we look at your word together. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, a couple weeks ago, Patsy and I had the privilege of driving down to Lake Jackson, south of Houston, and being there for the birthday party of two of our grandsons. One was turning five, the other turning four. And the four-year-old had said some time ago that he wanted to have an alligator birthday party. And his parents came through in grand fashion. And so they not only had everything decorated with alligators and lizards and jungle-like, cut down bamboo and put it all over the garage and it looked like walking into a bamboo place, you know, jungle place. And um, they even made a, a, a fruit arrangement that looked like an alligator with, pumpkin, with um, pineapples and stuff. And it was great, but the big grand finale of it all is they hired some people to come in with lizard, a big old mongoose lizard, snakes, turtles, alligator, and a crocodile. It was wonderful. But what are they going to do next year? (laughs) I feel sorry for them. Next year they're going to want to have a dinosaur birthday, right? Where are they going to get some dinosaurs? You you can oversell birthdays in a lot of events. You can do too much. You can overstate them. You can build people's expectations only to have them disappointed. You cannot do that with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's amazing. I mean, there, as I said last week, there is, is, this is what all of history has been pointing to. And that is 
that the Spirit of God would come and inhabit those who place their faith in Him. It is not only life-transforming for those individuals, but it has been the single greatest event that has ever impacted this world. And I'm not trying to minimize Christ dying for our sin and rising again from the dead. But the purpose for which He died for our sins and rose again from the dead is so that the Spirit of God could inhabit man again. This is why we've been created, to be in that kind of intimate union and oneness with God, that we can actually be indwelt by God and, and thereby, by His inhabitation of us, that we have the ability and the power to live this life in such a measure that, that God is actually seen through us. We've been created in the image of God, but we don't do a very good job imaging Him because God never intended for Him to be fully imaged apart from His Spirit indwelling us. And now with the Spirit of God indwelling those who have placed their faith in Him, people can see God as God intended to be seen in our humanity. I believe this is why Jesus says concerning John the Baptist, greatest man that was ever born, because he gave such clear witness of Jesus, but the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater even than John the Baptist, and it's because John did not have the indwelling Spirit imaging God through him as you and I do. There's a difference there. I don't fully understand all the difference, but there is clearly a categorical difference between what is happening here and what was taking place in the Old Testament. And it is, it is explosive in its power. I appreciate it. I came across a quote by Vance Havner. Some of you older folks here remember who Vance Havner was. I had the privilege of hearing him preach a couple times. Remarkable um, guy. And he said, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. You think we're going over, Jack is in the Sunday school class, adult Sunday school class, the book of Daniel. And we see in the book of Daniel these successive Gentile kingdoms that come. Each one is inferior to the previous one, but stronger than the previous one. So the first is gold, the Babylonians, greater in value but the weakest of the metals. And the last will be the Roman Empire, which is consist of, consist of iron, the least of value, but the greatest in strength. Here, the Roman Empire was the context in which the Holy Spirit is being poured out. And it's also the end of the Roman Empire. Because once the Spirit of God comes, and, and that... And, and I'm, I'm tempted to, it's not a Judeo-Christian ethic that comes, but it's the power to live the Christ's life indwells people, and that had such a major impact on secular society that it was the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. Because there's no longer any need, not for government, but to have that kind of crushing, brutal government when people are being ruled from within. They don't need that anymore in society. And since that time, there has never been the crushing, brutal kind of government needed here. Now, we still have had them. Communist governments are very crushing and brutal. But there has not been the need for that since Christ has taken up his residence within the hearts of those who know him. Because of the influence out from that has been life-changing, not only for those who have received Christ, but even for societies. The world has never been the same since this time. It would be difficult to overstate the significance of what's about to happen here. So in the first part that we read this morning, Jesus is ascended up into heaven. They're watching it. They see it. Then it's not the end of the story. This is just the transition to the good stuff. Okay? This is the best is last. And that is the, the coming of the Spirit of God. But Christ ascends, and He's told His disciples in another place, it is necessary that I go, it is to your advantage that I go, so that I can send another Helper, the Holy Spirit, who will indwell you and never leave you. I'm combining different statements that Jesus said in John. And so they're standing there looking, and interestingly, no one's crying now. At the tomb they were crying. On the road to Emmaus they're all discouraged. But something has already happened in these guys, and they're realizing this is monumental. And this is not crushing anymore to see that the one that we have put all our trust in is leaving. Nobody's standing around crying. 
Something has already taken place. These guys are understanding that the better is yet to come. And I can't imagine what those next few days were like. Jesus has spent 40 days talking with them after his ascension. Pentecost is coming up, and so this is only a 10-day wait. Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after um, the, the two other feasts that have just recently been observed. And so two angels walk up, and they go, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up in the sky? <laughs> Who wouldn't? He <laughs> says, but now it's time to stop looking at the sky. And then they give, they, these angels give the prophecy, which is not, this is not the only place that it occurs, and says Jesus is going to come back in the same way that he left. Well, how did he leave? Visibly, physically, and on the clouds. How's he going to come back? Visibly. Everybody's going to see him. Revelation says all the eyes of those who pierced him will behold him again when he returns. So visible, physically, there will be a physical return of Christ. This is not a spiritual return. It is a physical return of Christ that's yet to come. And it will come on the clouds. And he will come right back to the Mount of Olives where he ascended from. All these things have been clearly prophesied in Scripture. If you go to Jerusalem today... If you stand on the Mount of Olives and look back toward Jerusalem, the Muslims have done two things to keep Jesus from coming back. It's just so, so silly. They, they sealed up the eastern gate so that Jesus can't walk through it. And they put a big Muslim graveyard in front of the eastern gate because they figured a holy man would never want to walk through a graveyard. And somehow that's going to keep him from coming back. They're, they're really going to be shocked one day. So then the disciples are supposed to go back to Jerusalem and just wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Clear instructions. Just go back and wait. And so they go back and they, um, they devote themselves. It says, verse 13, they devote themselves to prayer. We're given the list of the disciples there, the 11 disciples. In verse 14, these all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, this is all great. They're of one mind, unity, and they're devoting themselves to prayer. This unity is, uh, that they have is a great thing, and it is yet still only a, a foretaste of the unity that they're going to experience once the Holy Spirit indwells them. It'd be, this unity is, is a unity that goes beyond anything the world can even think of. It goes beyond class. It goes beyond race. It goes beyond education. Everything you can think of, this is a unity that just totally absolves any type of division there could possibly be. Any reason for division. This unity cuts right across it. It is something the world has never seen. This is one of the things that, again, that is forecast by Daniel when he talks about those kingdoms. And he says that last kingdom, that, that kingdom of, of Rome, there's going to be a mixture of clay and iron, and they will seek to combine, but they will not be able to adhere. And the world has always been looking for a way to combine diverse elements. All the nations of the world under one, one world rule, ultimately, is what the enemy's after, and they are never going to be able to get these diverse elements to adhere. It only happens in Christ. That people that are truly diverse from each other can adhere in unity and oneness, and it is miraculous. Make no mistake about it. It is miraculous. It is something that only the Spirit of God can do. And that they are devoting themselves to prayer. What are they praying for? Well, in Luke, Jesus had told the disciples to pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so one good guess is that that's what they're doing. God said he's going to send the Holy Spirit, but we know that God would still have us to make requests for the very things sometimes that he says that he would do. So we don't know what they're praying for, but it's a pretty good um, idea that they're praying for the Holy Spirit as Jesus had, had told them to do in Luke. And not only were the 11 disciples there, shy of Judas, he would have made 12, but also the women... And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Now, the significance of mentioning the brothers is because up to the crucifixion of Christ, none of them were believers. 
So these men have all become, these brothers of Christ, have all become believers in Christ since his death and resurrection. They were the, probably the greatest skeptics of who Jesus was. And now they have come to faith. So that gives hope for anybody that we know that seems like they're never going to come to the Lord. If Jesus' brothers can come to the Lord, they spent all those years watching his life and not believing in him, then anybody can come to the Lord. And then Peter stands up to speak. That's significant too. Because that tells us that this unity that they have among them even involves forgiveness. Because Peter is the one who denied Jesus three times. And he's not living under the stigma of that. He has been totally accepted and even recognized as the leader of this group. That says a lot for this group. I mean, this is truly a, a remarkable, unique kind of unity that they're experiencing together. So Peter stood and stands up, and in brief he says, we need a number 12. Judas is gone. Scripture was fulfilled. And this says that... Um, he puts in, he says, Scripture had to be fulfilled. Verse 16, brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, and it still has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us, and he received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. Judas didn't go out and buy a field. But what, what, what happened is that when Judas took that, those, that price of betrayal, those 30 pieces of silver, he later felt remorse for what he had done, and he went back to the temple, and he tried to give the money back, and they wouldn't take it, so he just threw it across the floor, and he turned around and left. And they used that money to buy a no-man cemetery plot, a place where, where, the, where a decent man, a righteous man, a Jewish man could not be buried. But they needed, so they put all the criminals and, and refuse of humanity in this burial plot that they used to purchase from the money that Jesus had been betrayed with. And so Judas didn't buy the, his, the property himself, but it was used with the money that was given to him. And then it says that falling headlong, he, was, he, was, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Great verse to read on a Sunday morning with children present, but that's what it, what it is. Now, Judas hung himself the Gospels say. And so how do you put the two accounts together? It's, it's not that difficult, though we're only conjecturing, but it could be easily imagined that, that after hanging on that tree for however long he was there, that his body would have bloated, the tree branch could have broken, and when he hit the ground, he broke open. Um, and, and so Peter's focusing on the horrendous part, which... All of it's horrendous, but the really gory part is what he tells us, tells us a little bit about Peter. Anyway, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakadama, that is the field of blood. And then, this is interesting in verse 20, Peter chooses two of the Psalms David wrote and pulls out these verses to substantiate what he is saying that um, this is, that Judas has to be replaced. Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it. That's the first verse, and that's from Psalm 69. And then he jumps over to Psalm 109 and says, His office let another man take. Now here's the difficulty. This is right from the beginning of Acts. We're going to see this replay itself throughout this book as we do in all histor hysterical, hysterical, historical narrative. I don't know why that came out. Okay, the problem with, his, with history, the problem with historical narrative is that it's simply a recounting of the history of what happened. This is why we don't build our doctrine off historical narrative. We build our doctrine off the clear teaching passages of God's Word, and there are many of them. Because God will tell us what happened in history and not put any commentary on it. And so we don't know if, if it's supposed to have happened this way or if God just simply said it happened. An example would be when Rahab lied about the spies being with her. And so historical narrative says Rahab took in the spies, the city 
the men of Jericho came and asked, did you take them in? And she said, no, they're not here. All the while they were hidden there in her house. And, and then we take from that, it's okay to, on occasion, lie. The problem with coming to that conclusion is, Scripture says, Satan is the father of all lies, and that it is impossible for God to lie. So this is why we would say, Rahab was a woman of faith, but the Bible never commends her lying. It commends her faith, not her lying. And people of faith can do the wrong thing. So there's no commentary on whether she did the right thing or wrong thing in the historical narrative. We're just told what she did. And now we have to use the rest of Scripture to comment on whether it was right or not. And the rest of Scripture would tell us lying is sin. Revelation says all liars go to the lake of fire. That's a pretty strong statement that lying is not endorsed by God. So now we're facing a similar thing here. Nobody knows whether Peter was doing the right thing or not in wanting to find a replacement for Judas. Now, most of the commentaries that I've read on this believe that he did the right thing. But we don't know. I lean toward saying he didn't. Because the only thing Jesus said to do was wait. He didn't say, take a vote. He didn't say, oh yeah, we need 12. Can you guys take care of that now that I'm gone? He could have taken care of it before he left. It had been very easy, right? Because there's lots of guys standing around. He could have said, oh, Matthias. But he didn't do that. And so it's an argument from silence, and and so I can't, you know, be dogmatic about it, but I lean toward the side of saying, Peter is being Peter. And he's being a little bit impulsive here. He's being quick on the draw, and And it would have been fine if he had done nothing, but we don't know. We know this is the last time that casting of lots is used to make a decision. never occurs again in the Bible. And I believe it's because we have the Bible and we have the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of truth, who will lead us into all truth and give us understanding. This is what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. And never again do we see the church resorting to lots to determine God's will. And even you think about in the Old Testament, lots weren't always used. You think about when Samuel went to anoint David. And all these brothers of David come marching out. Jesse sends them all out from oldest to youngest. And the Spirit is saying to Samuel, not that guy. He's impressive, I know. Not that guy. Not that guy. Not that guy. And finally, Samuel's going, you got any other sons? And well, yeah, there is that David guy. (laughs) You know, we forgot about him. The runt. Bring the runt in. And the Spirit says, that's the guy. And so, and then the same thing when it came to, to the, the anointing of, of Saul. It was all the Spirit of God that was making this known to Samuel. And now the Spirit of God is indwelling believers. So we should be very reluctant to resort to lots to making decisions. I make my pro and con list. Pros, cons, Okay. Now you've made them, what do you do? You trust God. <laughs> because everything, that, everything that's on the con list, unless it's a violation of Scripture that's on that con list, it just means pros and cons. I've got to look for violation of God's Word. And if God's Word's not violated, then maybe God's going to willingly lead me into the more difficult circumstance so I'll have to trust Him. And so I can't just cast lots. I can't just make my pro and con list, but listen to what the, word, what the Spirit of God is saying and make sure that it is, in, it is consistent with God's Word and not in violation of it. So a few observations we can make from this part of chapter 1. The most skeptical, Jesus' brothers, are won over, and they still can be. Unity, this unity, a taste of the union that is to come, is is amazing and it is noteworthy, but again, it is only a taste of what's going to come and what we have in Christ. And it is, the coming of the Spirit is going to be, as I've said, just truly transformative for this world. I was teasing with Patsy the other night and we had just gone to bed and sometimes when I do converse a little bit, and, um, and I said, 
something along the line of, um, have you been reading your Bible more lately? Probably not the best way to start out a conversation. <laughs> and, she, and, and she goes, well, yeah, I have. And, um, and, I, and I said, well, she goes, why do you ask? And I said, because you're not as frustrated with me as you've been. And, um, and I'm thinking, I haven't changed. And um, of course not. <laughs> and, and she goes, well, I've only been reading Ezekiel and Jeremiah. You know, like, what good does that do? <laughs> and so maybe, you, maybe it is you. But the point is, it, it takes the Spirit of God. And you can, you can have all the counseling classes and, and all the list of what you should and shouldn't be doing, but ultimately union is the, is the fruit of God's Spirit and what He is accomplishing in our lives. You're never going to be one, truly one, apart from the Spirit of God. In other words, in other, in, unless, other, otherwise, it is two diverse elements like iron and clay trying to adhere. Can't happen. But God makes us one, one with Him and one with each other. And when we're living in the Spirit, walking according to to the Spirit. It's amazing how you can get along with people. And these people, we're going to see in chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, man, they're giving away all their stuff to each other. Wherever there's a need, they're meeting it, they're liking each other, they're taking joy with each other. It is what God did. These are the same people that before they're going, man, I mean, you know how it is. Man, I hope I don't get invited to their party. Crummy parties when you go to their house. You know, and, oh, I know why he didn't give me, you know, respond to me. And, you know, and I, you know, and, you know, all the gossip and the backbiting and stuff. And it's just gone because of what the Spirit is bringing about in their lives. We're told that Scripture has to be fulfilled, and it does. We're told that the resurrection is of central importance. It is the foundation of the witness that we give concerning Christ. That was in verse 22. He says, we need to find somebody, verse 21. It is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, of all those people, apparently there's only two they could think of that had been with them from the entire time, from baptism of John to the ascension of Christ. It would seem that there's only two, and that's why they put forth only two names. But Peter is correct. The central thing that they're going to give witness to is the wit- they will witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's going to be the, probably the most repeated phrase in Acts. When it comes to their sermons, to the witness that they're given, they're just saying, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. It is the thing that's going to land them in prison and cost them their lives. We're simply saying, Jesus is alive. It is the It is the the root, the essence. It is the whole story. Jesus is alive. That is what they're going to bear witness of, and that is what we bear witness of. Not of ourselves, but of Christ raised from the dead. Now, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, I think it's important just to to do a little bit of of review here. And we have time. I'm going to start chapter 2. But first of all, the coming of the Holy Spirit we know has been promised by Jesus. He's promising it here, and he's promised it back in the Gospels, that the Holy Spirit is coming, and Jesus is sending him. He has to go to heaven. Jesus has to go to heaven, and he can send the Holy Spirit. And we know not only has Jesus promised it, but it has been prophesied even in the Old Testament. And probably, the, the, I think, one of the clearest examples of this is in Ezekiel 36, where we have the new covenant being explained. And the thing that Ezekiel talks about, he says, your sin has to be washed away. That's forgiveness. You have to receive a new heart, a new spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be given to you in order that you might obey him. And so those are four things that happen when a person places his faith in Christ. Immediately, it's simultaneous. It appears to be simultaneous to us. But our sins are washed away. We're given a new heart, a new spirit, And the Spirit of God comes to live in us so that we might obey Him. It is impossible to obey God apart from the Spirit of God. And this has all been prophesied in the Old Testament. So if you do not have the Spirit of God, you cannot please Him. You cannot obey Him. You're doing it in your own strength, and that doesn't please Him, and that's not true obedience. 
And then we see that when the Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2, they're going to start speaking in tongues. And we'll also see that is not the main thing. That is secondary at best. So that when Peter will start preaching after that, he's not even going to make mention of the tongues. He's going to focus on the person of Jesus Christ and that, that the Jews killed him and God has raised him from the dead. And so, same thing for us. Wherever we are on tongues, it is a consequence. And God would never tell us to focus on the consequence, but to focus on the cause. And that goes for everything that we'd want. Do you want unity? That is a consequence. Do you want joy? That is a consequence. Do you want peace? That is a consequence. The cause of all of these things is Jesus Christ and his indwelling spirit. Unity is a consequence of Christ in me. Joy is a consequence of Christ in me. Peace is a consequence of Christ in me. In fact, you could say Jesus is those things. He is our unity. He is our joy. He is our peace. And apart from him, we will never have those things. And we spend so much of our time as Christians trying to lay hold of the consequence rather than living from Christ, who is the cause. And that's why Peter, in this next chapter, he's not going to camp out on the tongues, because he knows that's merely a consequence of the Spirit of God who has come to indwell them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is something that the Scripture has also spoken a lot about, so we don't have to be you know, weird about this. And, and, but the Scripture has defined the ministry of the Spirit. Number one, it is His ministry, the Spirit's ministry, is to testify of Jesus Christ. That means for unbelievers, they need to hear concerning Christ in order that they might be saved. And the Spirit wants to bear witness of Jesus to the unbeliever. We tell our camp counselors every summer, you're going to have kids that are coming to your cabins and they want to talk about all kinds of stuff. They maybe want to talk about politics. Maybe they want to talk about same-sex attraction. Maybe they want to talk about demons and angels. We tell the counselors, talk about Jesus. You've got them in your cabin for five days. And you will sense, you will know the Spirit's enablement and the Spirit's empowerment to talk about Jesus. Because the Spirit of God has come to bear witness of Christ. All those other things are important. We're not saying that. And they need to have those kinds of conversations. But you will know God's enabling when you talk to unbelievers about Jesus. I'm telling you, you will know God's enabling power when you talk about Jesus. Ian Thomas used to tell our kids, every time we were with him up in Colorado, the last thing he would say was, he would say, never stop talking about Jesus, and you will never cease to be amazed at what God does. Every time our kids saw him, the last thing he'd say, never stop talking about Jesus, kids. You'll never cease to be amazed at what God does. And after he died, Mrs. Thomas, his widow, told me, you know, Charlie, whenever he would say that, he was talking to the dad. <laughs> and I go, oh, you know, thank you for telling me that. We all need to be reminded. Never stop talking about Jesus. And you will never cease to be amazed at what God does. Because the Spirit is there through us. And the Spirit is working. He, he wants to bear witness of Jesus. The second thing that he does in his testimony of Jesus is... He empowers us for living this life. And third, he exalts Christ. And where Christ is not being exalted, the Spirit of God is not working. Because the Spirit is always going to bring attention to Jesus, not to himself. We know that one of the ministries of the Spirit, Jesus said, is when I send the Spirit, he will indwell you, and he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he goes on to explain that concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. 
Now, the interesting connection, and maybe I'm not right on this, but, but when I read that passage, he says, when I send the Holy Spirit to you, he will convict the world. I think there's a connection there. And this is one of the things that has helped me as a Christian, where sometimes, man, just all of a sudden out of blue, you just get blindsided, and you go, why does this person react so to me like they are? Why are they hating me like they are? And I don't even know this guy. You know, and he's just, man, this strong reaction. A coworker or somebody that you're with, and you're going, where did that come from? Well, we shouldn't be surprised. Because Jesus says, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And I think the connection, when the Spirit of God is in you, the world is going to be convicted. And they go, why don't you? And they will accuse you of always talking about sin. And you go, when was the last time I talked about? Well, I always feel dirty when you're around. I feel unholy when you're around. You're always condemning me. When have I condemned you? But that, where's that coming from? Jesus said, the Spirit of God's going to indwell you, and I will convict the world. And one of the ministries of the Spirit is to convict the world. And I believe He's doing it through us, even when we don't even open up our mouths. Just live a light, a life of light, and the darkness reacts. Just be thankful. Paul says, be thankful, and you are, are as lights in the world. And the, I got it, man, the darkness hates the light. And you can just be thankful. And the world will hate you. For what? Why did they crucify Jesus? Because he was good. Do we think that the world's going to reward us? It might. Not likely. The ministry of the Spirit? To testify of Jesus. To convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In Romans 8, I think it's the chapter on the Holy Spirit in all of the Bible. He gives many ministries of the Spirit. And he starts out, second year students, I could call them up here and they would recite it for you perfectly, I'm sure. Y'all ready to come up? I'm just kidding. Okay. The first thing that he does is that he, is when the Spirit of God comes and dwells us, he frees us from the law of sin and death. And then it says, he fulfills in us the requirement of the law. And then you go a little bit further down the chapter, and it says that by the Spirit, we are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And then a couple of verses later, and it says the Spirit of God lives in us to bear witness that we are the children of God. So these are some of the ministries of the Spirit of God when He comes to indwell us, sets us free from the law of sin and death, fulfills in us the, the requirements of the law, puts to death the deeds of the body, and bears witness that we are the children of God. No wonder, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. How can that be? Because if Jesus were walking around the flesh, as I said last week, he would not be indwelling you and me. And I can have all of Christ right now, wherever I am, and so can you. When we walk out these doors this morning, we're not leaving Jesus behind. Jesus doesn't dwell in a church, a building. He dwells in you and me. I can talk to him anytime I want, and he's ready to listen to me, and I can hear him. Now, the day will come when he will walk around on this earth again, and we will still have the Spirit of God within us. Now, that'll be even better than today. But right now, we're living in the richest times of human history, since Adam in the garden, of a person's ability to be one with God and to fellowship with Him. We have it good. Christ is in us. We have someone who will guide us into all truth. That is amazing. We can still get it wrong, but it's because we don't listen. We don't read our Bibles. We don't come before God and say, God, I'm just a sheep that needs a shepherd. You're the shepherd. Lead me. You've promised that you would lead me into all truth. The problem is, is that many things God has spoken so clearly to in his word, and we really don't like it a whole lot. And so we go our way. But we'll never be able to say before God in heaven, 
you know, Lord, there was a time there where you just didn't tell me the truth. You withheld. You held back. God's going to say, excuse me? I am the truth, and the spirit of truth is living in you, and my promise, which never fails, is I will always guide you in the truth. Always. And he also promises to give us understanding. And greatest of all, Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, make them one with us, even as I am one with you. And because of the indwelling Spirit of God, I've been brought into the most perfect relationship that has ever existed from all of eternity. The relationship of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we get to come into that. Father, make them one with us, even as I am one with you. There is no perfect family on earth, but there is a perfect relationship in heaven. And we have been brought into that. Made one with that. Why would we want to live from ourselves when we have the perfect relationship that we can live from? It's amazing what God has given us in Christ. So when we come to chapter 2, I'll just spend a couple minutes here. When the day of Pentecost had come, this is that feast, Feast of Pentecost, they were all together in one place, and apparently they were together in one place, either in the temple complex itself or, or very, very nearby. And there suddenly came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. Wow. Let's be clear. There was no wind, and there was no fire. These are figures of speech, similes to be precise, because a simile is designated by the words like and as. So no one felt a wind. They heard a wind. No one got hot because there's a there's something burning on top of their heads. There was no heat in the room. There was a light that looked like fire, and there was a sound that sounded like wind. That wind sound, the word for wind, the word for breath, the word for Holy Spirit, for spirit, are identical in both the Hebrew and the Greek. So there's probably a play on words going on here. And I'm, hopefully this is my sanctified imagination, but I would imagine that if we had been in the Garden of Eden on the day that God created Adam, when it says that he formed him out of the dust of the ground and then he breathed into him the breath of life, that if had we been there, we would have heard that breath. And God put his spirit into man. I think that's what's happening here. There is no wind, but there is the sound of the breath of God as God is breathing upon men, into men, his spirit. And the spirit of God indwells them. What looked like fire, fire throughout the Old Testament is often a, a picture of God's presence. The Shekinah glory, the the mountain of Mount Sinai that looked like it was engulfed in flames, the burning bush, all of these things point to the presence of God. So the power of God and the presence of God. Well, then the tongues is merely an outward way to make known this inward, invisible reality of the Spirit of God. And so there's 15 different languages that are mentioned here of all these different people groups. They were all Jews or Gentiles who had proselytized, converted to Judaism. So they were still Jews. So either natural-born Jews or Jews by conversion. So the audience is Jewish, and it is a sign for them. It takes place in the temple complex, 
And they all were hearing the language in their own language, so these weren't unknown languages, and there was no need for an interpreter. But it was impressive, and as we are prone to do, and the unbeliever is prone to do, they put their emphasis on this sensational thing that was happening and really asking the wrong question. Instead of, why has this happened? What does this talk about? They wanted to dismiss it as just being drunk and not really get to the core of what was going on. It wasn't about the tongues. It wasn't even about the joy that these people were obviously manifesting. But it was about the presence of God within those who had just placed their faith in Him. So we can make some observations here about these things. At the Feast of Pentecost, why now? One of the things, and again, I am no expert on on these things. We have one of the guest speakers that comes to his hill, spends a week just talking about the Feast of Israel. And it's a phenomenal um, study. But the Feast of Pentecost was always celebrated with a sheet, like a a bread, um, a a baker's sheet. What do you put? Pizza, bake, whatever. What is the thing you put bread on? What do you call that, Audrey? Baker's sheet. Baking sheet, there you go. And so that baking sheet had two loaves of bread on it. One sheet, two loaves of bread. And we believe that was symbolic and looking forward to two distinct peoples, Jew and Gentile, who would become one. And so it's at this time that God is unifying the human race through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then when we think about the tongues itself, it's going to occur three times in Acts. Chapter 2, chapter 10, and chapter 19. And in each time, there is a Jewish audience. So I think it's reasonable to say that tongues was a sign for the Jewish people. And then some observations that we can make about the tongues. It was unpredicted in that there was no former knowledge of this in the Old Testament. It's never said anything about it. Even Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He didn't say, you're going to speak in tongues. Secondly, it was unsolicited. No one was praying for tongues because nobody even knew anything about tongues. And see, today, people oftentimes pray to be able to speak in tongues. These people were not praying to speak in tongues. They never heard of tongues. It was known languages. There was no need for an interpreter because these people were speaking languages they had never learned. They were speaking the languages of the audience that was there. They spoke of a specific subject, the mighty deeds of God. So they weren't talking about trivial stuff. They were speaking about specific things, the mighty things that God has done throughout history. I believe that that would have included the resurrection of Christ, because that's the greatest thing he had done. It was also judgmental in purpose. It was an indictment on Israel. Because God raised up Israel to to be a light to the nations. And they put their light under a bushel. And the clearest example of that was when Solomon was was king and all the nations of the world came to Israel. And those nations left the same way they came. None of the nations turned to God, to the God of Israel, to the God of heavens, as Daniel would say because of the witness of Solomon. It was a tragic time in Israel's history. They squandered the opportunity that God gave them. And so now, all these nations are hearing. And it's an indictment, a rebuke upon Israel that has had the opportunity and the obligation for all of these years. And they've done virtually nothing with it. And in a moment, God is turning it all around. It was a verification of those who were, were truly belonging to him. One question I don't, I don't know the answer to is, what about all the other people who were believing at this time who weren't there at the temple? Do you remember Paul says that during the ascension, the, the, the resurrection of Christ in those 40 days on earth, that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, all of them believers. Well, there's 120 that are here. So what about the other 380? We don't know. Were they speaking in tongues at the same time? I doubt it. There would have been no need for them to. 
These people were standing with an international audience in front of them. There was a need for them to speak in languages that all these people could understand. But I would imagine that all the other 380 who aren't here at the same exact time, they are receiving the Holy Spirit as well, but not speaking in tongues. And then finally, it was used as an opportunity to proclaim Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so there was a, there was a content and a specific purpose to this. The world will never be the same. This power of the Holy Spirit within the believer is greater than any government or military. This is the thing that can truly transform people and societies. The Spirit of God within. The indwelling Spirit of Christ in us is the answer this world needs. And it is the answer for every problem. Simply Jesus. If I don't have Jesus in me, I cannot live this life. And if I have Christ in me, I have everything I need for living this life. It's as simple as that. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for all that you've revealed, but especially for all that you've given us. Christ in us. The Spirit of God sent to indwell fallen humanity. Thank you that our sins have been washed away. And we've been given a new heart and a new spirit. And I thank you especially for the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables and empowers us to live the life that only he can live. A life of godliness, a life of obedience, a life that it manifests itself in joy, love, and unity. But I do pray, God, as we long for the consequence that we would be diligent to come back to Jesus, the cause, and his indwelling spirit. In Christ's name, amen.